Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today we join with saints around the world and across history in praising you. We praise you no matter where we are and no matter what is going on around us. Our personal and cultural contexts may change, but you remain the same. You remain faithful to your children when we are at peace. You remain faithful to your children when we are at our lowest point. Your commitment to us is unfathomable, and we pray that we would never tire of considering, meditating on, examining, and growing in our understanding of who you are and your love for us. Give us a hunger to know you. Lord, we know that those who fear you are blessed. Those who fear you are like well-watered trees with deep roots and strong limbs, and no wind can shake them. But we are tempted to place our fear in other places. These fears threaten to knock us down. These fears want to steal our joy. They want to destroy our relationships. They want to kill our faith. Lord, deliver us from these fears and fix our eyes firmly on you. Have mercy on us, Lord. We will look to you for your mercy. While we do not fear anyone but you, our lives are impacted by the rulers of this world. So for the sake of your saints, we pray that you would judge the spirit of this age that is promoting division and violence. Bring leaders across the country to believing loyalty to you so that righteousness and justice would reign and your name would be praised. Bring relief to weary healthcare workers. Bring comfort to families affected by grief. We calm and quiet our souls now to hear the preaching of your living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You may have a seat. And hopefully you guys got those Daniel booklets that we wanted to provide for you because we are so thankful to be part of a church that loves reading through God's Word. Amen? You guys love the Word, right? Good, because we're going to go through a lot of it today. So you can turn to Daniel chapter 1, and that is where we're going to be focusing is on the first seven verses there of Daniel chapter 1. The summer of my freshman year in college, which seems like a really long time ago now, I was traveling from school in Indiana to my parents' home back in Portland, and I didn't quite have enough money uh, to take a flight, and so I had to take the train. Um, so we were coming through Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and as we were pulling out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, the train came to a screeching halt, and we heard over the loudspeakers that the tracks in front of us had washed out. And so they thought, okay, well, we'll just back the train up back into Wisconsin. And so we started going backwards, which is really kind of disconcerting on the train, right? And we start going backwards, and all of a sudden we come to a screeching halt, and we hear the tracks behind us have washed out. And so for 24 hours, we were stuck on this train as we waited for the tracks to be repaired. Now remember, I'm old enough that this is before cell phones. This was before Wi-Fi. This was before readily available internet. And so I will tell you, I have never done as much solitaire in my life as I did in that 24 hours. And I'm talking real cards here, people, okay? Not, not the phone, real cards. For 24 hours, I didn't have a home. I couldn't get back to my dorm at school. I couldn't get to my parents' home. Uh, and so I was stuck. I was a man without a home. The closest thing to exile I have ever felt. And that was only for 24 hours and kind of pathetic, right? Most of us, myself included, have no idea what it is to be a refugee or an exile. Some of you in here might, but most of us do not. Most of us in this congregation have no idea what it is to even emigrate to a new home. I've always been shocked when I've asked you guys, how many of you have gone on vacation before? And some of you are like, no, I lived in Salem my whole life, right? We don't understand and know what it is to be in exile. And so when we come to the book of Daniel, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this idea of exile. I wonder, though, if in this last year, the, possibly, uh, the, the, the possibility of having the, our eyes open to this idea has come about a bit because of the heartbreaking nature of the lawlessness we've seen around us, especially even in this last week. I wonder if these horrible events over the last year have given us a glimpse into what it feels like to be strangers in a strange land, to not really feel like you fit in with any of the voices that are screaming. I know personally, I have, used my, uh, I have found myself using the old idiom, stop the world, i got to get off, right? How many of you felt that way over the last year? Anybody? Stop the world, I want to get off. Because no matter where you go on the planet, 
It seems there's no reprieve from the brokenness of our world. It was shocking to me, even when I talk with my brothers over in Burkina Faso in West Africa, it seems like they were going through the exact same things and still are. And so the connection across the world is even stronger than it has been in the past, and all of us are dealing with brokenness. And yes, some places may seem better than others, but what has hit many of us is the shattering reality that our world is beyond broken. And so we're left with this question, what do we do with that? What do we do with this feeling of feeling like we are strangers in a strange place? Well, while I'm heartbroken at the state of the world over the last year, as a pastor, I'm extremely thankful for what it's done to opening people's eyes. Because I think a lot of Christians have been shocked into the reality that this world, as it stands, will never be our home. It's shocked people out of a false sense of security. Friends, it doesn't matter if you move to a state with different politics. Yes, the restrictions of COVID might change, but overall, things will not change to such a degree that a Christian will feel completely at home. It doesn't matter who gets into office. It doesn't matter how many gains we make in changing or adding laws. It doesn't matter how much money you make or how much comfort you acquire. Until resurrection and restoration, this world will never be the home of those who have unwavering allegiance to the God of the Bible. And so we, as disciples of Christ, we must learn to accept, if we haven't already, that we are indeed a people in exile. We are a people without a country in this physical realm. And we need to ask the question, how do we live in in exile in a way that glorifies God and proclaims his gospel? How do we live as strangers in a strange land in a way that glorifies God and proclaims his gospel. Praise God that Daniel serves as an answer to this question. In this section we're going to cover this morning, we're going to be introduced to our main character, Daniel, and his three companions as they step into exile, and they're introduced to this life of exile. And so in this text, we will begin to answer the question of what our lives should look like as exiles, strangers in a strange land, sojourners. So would you prepare your hearts this morning and your minds to join me in what I've entitled an introduction to a life in exile. An introduction to a life in exile. And then we're going to dive right into our text and read through it, and then we'll begin unpacking it. An introduction to a life in exile. Let's go ahead and look there at Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The first thing that we are given is the context of the exile. Right there at the very beginning, as we looked at a bit last week and we're going to look at again this morning, we're given the context of exile. Disobedience that leads to division. We touched on this briefly last week, but I want you to think with me about the biblical theme of exile that starts all the way back in the garden. The garden was to be humanity's home sweet home. It was to be the place where we walked with each other and with the Lord in the cool of the day where we had everything provided for us. It was truly to be where our heart was. Home is where the heart is. And we were created to be in union, in relationship. And so when God created the embodied world in which we live and placed that garden and placed us in it, one would think we would have done just fine, but you guys know the story. The first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, chose to remove God from his place of authority and place themselves in that throne of authority instead themselves. 
They chose to redefine good and evil for themselves and became their own God and their own authority. And the ramifications of this we still see happening every day when we turn on the news or when we have a fight with our spouse. We see the ramifications of us trying to be our own authority. And this lawlessness that has oneself at the center, it has completely enveloped our culture. And as a result of this, God pronounced what is commonly called a curse, but was more so a foretelling, a foretelling of the consequences, a pronouncement, if you will, of the result of what would occur because of humanity's sin. And then he sent them out from the garden at that moment. He exiled them and expelled them from the garden. Take a look up on the screen with me at Genesis 3, 22 through 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There in verse 23, we see them expelled, exiled. And where are they exiled to? They're exiled to the east. They're exiled out of the place that was their home and blocked from coming back because without the atoning work of the future Messiah to forgive their sin, they would be able to take of the tree of life and perpetuate this state of sinful brokenness forever with no hope, with no restoration possible. And so God, in his holy and just nature, sends them out to the east into a land of exiled wandering. And from Genesis 3 through 10, as we looked at last week, we're given the story of mankind's downward spiral in sin, leading to further and further exile, further and further division from one another and from God, always encroaching eastward until Genesis 11. And there we see all of mankind collectively engage in the ultimate rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel in the land of Shinar, Babylon, this very same place. In Genesis 12, we see the same cycle repeat again as God calls out of Babylon the man known as Abram who would become Abraham. And from his offspring, he decides that he's going to plant them again in a garden, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place called the land of Canaan. And he wants to place them there and be at the center of their life. Remember the tabernacle that was placed in the center of the encampment as they went through the wilderness, eventually landing in the, the land of Canaan with a temple at their center. It's take two of the garden, if you will. And so after 400, a 400-year period of enslavement in Egypt, the offspring of Abraham, they went to that land, they set it all up, but then generation after generation, they followed in the same path of rebellion against God that led to the Tower of Babel. They rebelled against his rule over them. Specifically, they rebelled against God's law from Exodus through Deuteronomy that was clear that they were to have one God and one God alone. And yet the people of Israel persisted in combining the pagan gods that the other peoples and nations had with Yahweh and making their own gods. They persisted in disobeying the law, in not serving the poor and the vulnerable, the fatherless and the immigrant. They refused to follow the Sabbath law for giving debts and giving the land rest on the schedule prescribed by the Lord. They were driven by greed and hatred and selfishness. Does that sound like any kind of a society we know? Greed and hatred and selfishness. And all of this led God to announce that they had broken covenant with him. I told you I was going to turn you to a lot of places today. Go to Jeremiah with me. Jeremiah chapter 11 in your Bibles. And we're going to spend a pretty good amount of time in Jeremiah today. Jeremiah 11, verse 16. Give me an amen when you get there. Excuse me, verse 6. Jeremiah eleven six, It says this, The Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the inquiries of their, their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. 
Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore do not pray for this people or lift a cry up in prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. Wow. They are so far gone and unrepentant in the stubbornness of their hearts for so long that God tells Jeremiah, his prophet, don't pray for them, but simply buckle up as their punishment is given. And what is that punishment? It's the very exile we see Daniel having to exist in. Go a little bit to the right and look at Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 8. You can read this, the entirety of this chapter on your own time. Uh, for the sake of time today, I'm just going to go through a couple of verses, but this chapter gives a ton of background to what's going on in Daniel. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 25, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them. I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This ongoing unrepentant disobedience as a nation in pride, refusal to turn back to God led them to a place where God would allow disaster to come upon them out of loving discipline. And he would do so using the armies of Babylon and the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Look with me up on the screen there at 2 Chronicles. The end of 2 Chronicles as we look at a historical narrative piece. And again, I know I'm giving you a ton of scripture, but this should give you a very good background to what's going on in Daniel. 2 Chronicles 36, 17, it says, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the, hours, or in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all this he brought to Babylon." They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire, destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This context of exile is one that has a very, very difficult background to look at. This is a horror. This is a nightmare to the people of Israel. We read it in Daniel. You can go ahead and turn back there to Daniel. We read it in Daniel chapter 1, and we see the first couple of verses, and we think, oh, yeah, that's just the natural happening. No, this was a nightmare. And this context of exile <clears throat> is not too dissimilar from the context of the gospel. God's desire, as much as it is up to him, is to have deep covenantal relationship with humanity, with his people, to provide for them, to protect them, to guide them. But his people, whether that be Adam and Eve, whether that be the offspring of Abraham or humanity in general, we kick against the goads of his authority and dismiss him. And the wages of doing so for us is our own death and ultimately division from our creator for all eternity. In the exile to Babylon, we're presented with a bold example that disobedience leads to division, division from God and from his place of protection and blessing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is the context that Daniel and his companions find themselves in. Disobedience has led to division, to exile. And I'd suggest to you that it is this context we find ourselves in as well. How do we know? Because of the rest of the story of Daniel there, even in our text today. And so let's leave our high-level view and zoom in on the effect of the exile on the actual people of Israel. And from their vantage point, I want to see what does exile look at so that we can see that we are indeed a people in exile. And so next, we're going to look at the nature of exile. 
The nature of exile is to be strangers in a strange land. We are given a blessed view as the readers of the story and with all the background from the other biblical sources we've already quoted. But to the people on the ground, what did it feel like for them? The prophets had told them to a certain extent what was going on, but that doesn't remove the fact that it seems as though God is powerless to stop what is going on. That's what it felt like. To the people of Israel, they must have felt completely hopeless and powerless as they looked around and saw the chaos around them. Does that resonate with anybody? Completely powerless and hopeless as you look around and see the chaos surrounding you? The psalm that we read earlier at the beginning of our gathering was a psalm of exile in which the psalmist cries out. They cry out from Psalm 79 saying, how long, O Lord, will this go on? At the end of it, they say, why should our enemies and why should other nations say, where is their God? God, it seems like you're not here. What are you doing? Where are you in the midst of this? They're lamenting because it seems that he is no longer present and they're going to be made the laughingstock of the nations. And this is backed up in Daniel's opening sentence because he declares that even the temple wasn't sacred. Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, raided the temple, stole the implements of Yahweh's worship, and took it back to be misused in Babylon. Most likely, these vessels that were once used in worship to Yahweh were now being used in the temple of Marduk, the primary god of Babylon. Marduk was possibly even the god to whom the the Tower of Babel was built in honor. And here the implements were being used in his worship. Excuse me, this was the standard way of belittling a people and a god. You can think of the Philistines placing the Ark of the Covenant in their temple of their half-man, half-fish god, Dagon, in 1 Samuel 5. Uh, This was the ultimate smack-talking of the day. And so not only has their homeland been invaded and pillaged, but now they're to be taken back to Babylon, a strange land that they do not know, to assist in the worship and service of a king that is not their own. Are you getting the background to this and how dark and nightmarish it is for them? Now let's break this down a bit. We know from the Assyrians that when a people were taken into exile, they would be chained. Sometimes a hook would be put through their nose. They would be stripped naked, sometimes taken all the way back on foot to the place where they were being exiled into captivity. The four young men we meet are taken from their true home to be used in the courts of Babylon, and even their journey there must have been belittling and embarrassing. And not only that, these are not just any four youths. Most likely, they were from the royal family of Judah, the the family of David. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are probably in their early teenage years, 13, 14 years old, and they've grown up watching this impending threat come on their nation and lineage, and now they find themselves as strangers in a strange land without their families, without their homes, under a strange ruler who worships a false god, no longer as royalty, but now as servants. To top it all off, Babylon is not just any old place. It is the place where high treason was committed against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the seed of wickedness and the place where rebellion against God was at its peak. To help you fully come to grips with this, of what is being described in this first section of Daniel, I thought about making a funny sports analogy about like, you know, for me playing basketball for Notre Dame, this would be like having to go to school at Michigan or something, right? But the reality is, is uh, it's much worse than that. Much, much worse than that. Here's a better example. That we as Americans suddenly coming under, come under Iranian occupation. And we're asked to serve the high clerics in Tehran and to help them worship Allah. Let that seek in for a minute. This was nightmare-level stuff that our main characters were enduring. And so I don't want to breeze past it. Because to understand that then gives great weight to their decisions in how they interact with the culture they find themselves in. They were strangers in a strange land forced to operate in enemy territory. And if this doesn't sound familiar, it should, because as disciples of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven, of the kingdom of light, and we are asked to dwell amongst the kingdom of darkness in a world that is at the height of rebellion against our God, in a world that crucified our king. And we're asked to dwell in that system and culture. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, do you feel at home in this world? 
When you see lawlessness and injustice surrounding you, do you even notice it or have you become numb to it? Are you comfortable in the kingdom of darkness? Do you feel at home with the spirit of the age or are you strangers in a strange land? I wonder if we need to ask this today for the Lord to soften our hearts to remember that we are indeed sojourners here. This is not our home. This is not our home. For us, we may need to spend some time considering this and softening our hearts to it. But for the four characters here in our text this morning, they were all too well aware of what exile was like. And they were being pulled into a place where they were to give in to the culture in a huge way. And in some ways they did, as we'll see in a moment. They were being asked to feel the effects of exile. That's the next thing you can write down, the effect of exile. And this is also part of how we know and can see that we as Christians are in exile. Because the effect of exile usually pulls people in one of two directions. It pulls them towards the end of the spectrum of assimilation, or it pulls them in the end of the spe- towards the end of the spectrum of revolt. And as we continue along in the opening lines of Daniel, we see that Nebuchadnezzar advised one of his chief stewards to bring nobility with potential to him so that they might be trained, or more woodenly, the words here for educated are to be brought up as if trained by a parent, to be raised in the ways of the Chaldeans. And the text gives us what seems to be four ways that this assimilation was being accomplished. First, it was through their education. It says in Daniel 1.4 that the lead steward was to round up youths that looked the part of royalty and that were, in essence, intelligent enough to be retrained, to be assimilated into the Chaldean culture. Again, it would be as if Americans were taken to Tehran and being asked to re-assimilate into that culture. And not just the buying and selling of everyday trade or living in a house there, but the very basis of their culture, the literature, the law, the religion. And to do so, we see the same thing here. They would be educated in the language and the literature of Babylon. In those days without the printing press, only few things were actually written down on paper. And so we know that what they most likely would have had to read were laws and religious texts. And so they were going to be re-educated to revere the civil government and the laws of the land and the religion of the land in which they found themselves. Likewise, language is such a major part of this discussion that even the linguistic structure of Daniel itself reflects this assimilation. In the earliest manuscripts, verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through 2-4 is written in Hebrew because you have these Hebrews that are being taken into captivity. Then from 2-5 until 7-28, It's written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of Babylon. It was what was used for uh, for trade and and for religion and and for diplomacy. And then the last five chapters after that, when describing the future of Israel, are in Hebrew again. It gives this effect in the original manuscripts that Daniel and his companions are indeed being assimilated into the very culture of Babylon. Babylon. Second, not only literature and language through education, but they were also going to assimilate them through their appearance. They were going to do this with clothing and diet, eating what the king ate, and as we will see next week, uh, this was for the purpose of fattening them up so that they looked like the wise men and the counselors of the Chaldeans. I always get cracked up when I see people or hear people talk about the Daniel diet, right? We got to do the Daniel diet. It's a great diet. Do you realize that the whole point of what they ate was to get fat? That's the whole point. We'll go through that next week. They wanted to look like the wise men, so they wanted to look plump, right? So don't buy into that stuff when you hear the Daniel diet. It's not actually, that's not what it's there for. But this wasn't to keep them healthy. It was to get them to be assimilated into this Chaldean culture, this wise man culture. Third, not only through education and through appearance, but also through allegiance. After three years of education, they were to stand before the king. This was another way of saying they were to serve him be in service of his reign. The very king that toppled their temple. Amazing if you think about it. And fourth, they were to be assimilated through their identity. Notice that each of them are going to have their names changed. The names they had were names that reflected their part of Jewish culture and worship of the God of Abraham. But these very names, their very identity was going to be changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's debate on this idea, but most likely, just as their Israelite names gave 
worship to the God of Israel, these new names speak of being part of the culture of the Babylonians and their God. All of these means of assimilation were for the purpose of slowly but surely taking the people of power from the conquered uh, nations and removing their prior allegiances and identity so that they could be absorbed into Babylonian society. Now, now that we have this background and we see how nightmarish it was, what is so interesting to me is how little refusal or fight they put up. Did you notice that? We will see one refusal next week, but otherwise, dear friends, there is nothing. Nothing. Again, can you imagine if Iran took us back to their land and made these same changes to us? We would revolt and fight. But these young men don't do that. They actually go with it. And as we will see, choose very specifically, almost surgically, if you will, what they're going to push back on and how. They reserve the times for pushback so well that they know that they will be seen as wise when they do. And they know and will see that God is on their side to do it. With everything else, they walk in loyalty to the Babylonians and actually embrace the culture. And yet, as we will see in the midst of that, they stand firm in their loyalty to Yahweh. And you might say, well, Hans, they were forced. That's all it is. Would you be forced? They choose to embrace the culture in certain ways. They choose the appropriate battles upon which to stand firm. And this tension is a tough one for us to figure out. It's not what we're used to because usually, either rather than uh, stay in a tension between these two, the effect of being a stranger in a strange land is that you're going to be drawn in one of two directions, assimilation or revolt. We see this big time in our culture right now, and we see it big time in the church. Some will be assimilated into the culture to such a degree that you lose sight of unwavering allegiance to Yahweh, and in this scenario, you no longer remain a stranger but become a native in the culture you once felt as foreign. How many of you might trend in that direction, that you just get sucked into the social media and, and the spirit of the age and all the various causes that are going on to such an extent that that becomes your priority as opposed to Christ and his gospel. And this is similar in our story to the Jews who ended up feeling at ease in Babylon and no longer had a desire for the restoration of Israel. Or another option is to be in constant revolt against the culture, fighting against it to such an extent that everybody stops listening to you because they just know that you're yelling about everything. To such an extent that you not only feel like a stranger, but you are kept on the outskirts of culture as one because everybody's so tired of you yelling about everything. Some in Babylon did this, and some remained in Israel as protest against Babylon. But for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they choose to sit in a place of tension, existing in the culture, but not becoming assimilated to the point of losing their unbending loyalty to Yahweh. You see, it's a very, very well-known speaking tactic. And you might say, after I say this, Hans, you should employ it sometimes. But it's a very well-known speaking tactic that if all you do is speak all the time, people stop listening. But if you reserve certain times to speak boldly about certain things, people will listen to you. And that's what we see with them. We see them staying calm and silent and above the fray, except for those moments where they absolutely need to be heard. And I would submit to you that the same thing is true for us today as we engage in the culture. Neither of these options, to revolt or to assimilate, are God's desire for his true people. Instead, we are called to the same work as our four characters in Daniel as they obey God's call to his exiled people. Look with me at Jeremiah again. Go back there with me to Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah 24 gives directions of what is to happen when in captivity. It starts to outline who God is pleased with and who God is not. And then we'll step to another quote here in Jeremiah in a little bit that gives specifics about what it is to live in exile. But first here in Jeremiah 24, let's take a look at who God is going to bless. Is he going to bless those who are staying behind, who are fighting, who are, 
who are revolting, or is he going to bless the exiles that go into Babylon? Take a look there at verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon. The Lord then showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like the first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send famine, sword, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them and their fathers. Recognize with me here that it is the people that trust in the Lord's sovereignty that don't freak out in the moment but endure in the midst of exile that remain unwaveringly faithful to him. They will be a small remnant from which restoration will occur and the people will return to the land. And so with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, even in a culture as contrary to God as Babylon, what we're going to see is neither the blatantly rebellious revolt nor the passive assimilation that we might see in our world today. And God blesses them for it. What we'll see is a third way, a life of exile in which they find themselves in the midst of the culture, even loyal to the culture and surrounding society, but purposeful in sacrificial resistance when they know they need to stand firm in their worship and ultimate allegiance to Yahweh. And again, they're very selective when they do that. We'll see this not only in the story itself as it continues, but we see it even in the first few lines of our text from today. Right at the beginning of verse 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Notice that the author right away is saying, this is all the Lord's doing. That word Lord there is Adonai. It's not the name of Yahweh behind it. It's Adonai. It's saying the master, the one in charge, he did this. And we trust that he's doing it. And part of being able to be unwavering in exile is to recognize that even though it looks like God is not in control, and even though it feels like the strange culture in which you find yourself seems like it's overwhelming you, the Lord is sovereign. He has a plan, and that plan is being carried out ultimately to his ends. Now, friends, we all are going to have an innate reaction when we feel like we are in exile, like we are strangers in a strange land. Each of us will either revolt and try to take control back, or we will be passively assimilated and get sucked into the culture and lose our footing in the truth that we hold dear. I want to ask you this morning, as you do a little bit of heart work on yourself, which one do you trend towards? To which direction and how far have you been drawn in this last year? Because, listen to me, every single one of us has been. If you're sitting there going, oh, I'm good, I'm still standing firm on Jesus, I guarantee you that this word is for you. Which direction have you trended? It may not be a lot, but we have to look at it. I know for myself... Confession time, I am the one that will revolt, try and gain control. I know that's shocking to all of you who know me, right? But the reality is, is that's why I tend towards the other direction sometimes. I sometimes start to engage the culture, and some of you will come to me and be like, Hans, why are you engaging the culture so much? And I just kind of laugh to myself because I'm trying to stay in that tension. And all of us should be doing that. Some of you are so busy fighting back that you've become evangelists for yourselves and your own opinions rather than for the goodness of Christ and his gospel. Others of you are so caught up in the spirit of the moment and absorbed into the media abyss that you are unable to think for yourselves and filter things through a biblical lens and ask yourself the question, before I say this, should I? Because is it going to bring glory to God? 
And so you, likewise, have become an evangelist for a cause or for your own opinion rather than for the goodness of Christ and his gospel. It's so easy, friends, to fall prey to either of these two reactions. And that's why we must work so hard. Because as we look at Daniel and his friends and we see them, they're being used to call us to something different. A humble path in which we do not fully give in to assimilation nor revolt, but stand unwaveringly in Christ, in his gospel and his sovereignty. Friends, what will distinguish Christians from non-believers in our world right now is not to fall into the traps of the world around us, but to rise above it in humility and grace and love and to point people to Christ, not to an opinion. In doing so, we will show ourselves to be strangers in a strange land, but it will be in a way that draws others to us and eventually draws them to Jesus, just as it drew those around Daniel and his three friends. Because what you'll see with Daniel is because they reserve those times of revolt, when they do, even Nebuchadnezzar falls down on his face before Yahweh and says, you're the true God. That should be our desire as missionaries in this world. And so this is where we look to our four characters to see what their life in exile is like. And that's the last, the last header or <laughs> section that I'll uh, give you today. The life in exile. We'll see that they're ambassadors of another country. And that's what we should be as well. Turn just a little bit from Jeremiah 24 to the right there to Jeremiah 29. I've got two big sections to turn you to and then we'll be done for the day. Jeremiah 29. And we're going to see God's direct words about what it is that we should be as people living in exile. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. What is the response to exile, even in such a horrific place as Babylon, the seat of wickedness? Let's see what he tells them here. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And there's a little bit of history there. Skip down to verse 4 with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, by the way, pause. Now you know the actual context of that verse that's on so many of the magnets on your fridge. This has nothing to do with high school graduation. This has nothing to do with getting a new job, okay? You can throw all those magnets away. Your pastor just told you to, okay? Now you know the actual context. It had to do with exile. Moving on, verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back in the place from which I sent you into exile. He says to them three things. He says, settle in and live your life, seek the welfare of the place you live, and yearn for your true home. First, settle in and live your life. Rather than listen to the false prophets who constantly are telling the people that God will rescue them out of their exile tomorrow, they were to settle in. Now, friends, we are supposed to know and speak and worship about the fact that God is coming soon. That's absolutely true, even as we sang this morning. And we're supposed to have that hope, but not so much that it removes us from culture and turns us into a bubble waiting for the rapture all the time. That is not truth. And in fact, the false prophets are being 
basically told, stop it here, because what they were doing was saying, don't settle in. Don't seek the welfare of that culture. Just stay by yourselves, isolated, only seeking what you want to seek, because you're going to get out of here soon. No, instead, settle in, live your life. The Lord would tell them when it was time to go. They needed to settle in and until then live life in a way that showed him glory. Accept the exile and use it to glorify God. Secondly, though, not only were they to settle in and live their life, they were to seek the welfare of the place they lived. Man, so many Christians are constantly trying to figure out how to have heaven on earth and reinforce their bubble so that they only have to be around other Christians that think like they do. One of the biggest heartbreaks to me in this time has been hearing Christians say, well, i got to get away from these other Christians because they don't think like I do in terms of politics. It just absolutely breaks my heart. But friends, if you want to be missionaries and serve Jesus, stop trying to get away from everybody you disagree with. Stop trying to get away from non-believers and people that don't think biblically. I have just as much a hard time as many of you do being in the Pacific Northwest, but stop trying to only surround yourself with others that think like you. Realize that you live in a missionary target-rich environment. We should rejoice in the fact that there are so few believers in the Pacific Northwest. Man, it's an awesome place to be as missionaries. Rejoice in the fact that there are people that disagree with you and seek their welfare. Even if you see them as enemies, love your enemies. Seek the welfare of the people around you. Next, yearn for your true home. Keep your eyes set on heaven with that internal yearning for the place that is your true home and that is by the side of your Savior. But realize everything you're doing here now, man, it will be put forward into that time. And so we're asked to settle in and live our life, seek the welfare of the place we live and yearn for our true home. And we know that this model holds true. It wasn't just for the exiles of that day, it's for the exiles of today as well. Because we see Peter say this very same thing. Would you turn with me to the New Testament? Last place I'll turn you. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to just read from it. We know that this thinking and this design lasts for us in exile now because it's based upon the heart of God to be incarnate among his people. It's based off of his gospel. And we get this idea from Peter. He gives us a great understanding. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice, friends, please notice there that it doesn't say that by arguing with everyone, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It says, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Notice there's no caveat. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in the body, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, friends, Christ was our perfect model of life in exile. He left the very throne room of heaven to step into flesh and pursue us. He took on a voluntary exile so that you and I might know the Father and be reconciled to him. And when he was here, he sought our welfare, submitted to the earthly laws and governing authorities, and in select situations chose to protest with his very life. Christ was the ultimate ambassador of that country called heaven because he did abide by the laws and he did pursue the welfare of those around him. But he knew that he was here in exile for the ultimate purpose of drawing men and women into the kingdom of heaven. And it was for that reason that he ultimately went to his own death on the cross, taking on your sins and mine, the very sins of man that have resulted in us being exiled from God's presence. He was exiled so that we could come home. He paid the price for your sins and mine so that we could raise victoriously from death one day to be in union with the Father to be that prodigal daughter or son that finally runs into his arms and knows that we are home. This morning, if you are here in this room or maybe if you're watching on our live stream and you realize that you have always known that this is not your home, but now you have words to put to it today, that there is something more that Christ has called you to himself and he wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to help you deal with what's kept you divided and exiled as a stranger from him. And then he wants to save you and release you into the world to be his ambassador. If that's you here today or if that's you on live stream, I would love to talk with you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. You can come talk to me after the service or one of our other elders. Ryan's over in the back there. Patrick's over there. I thought I saw Tyler. There's Tyler. Feel free to talk to any of the elders. If you're online, feel free to email me at hans at missionsalem.com. I'd love to chat with you about what it is to step into relationship with Christ. But if you're already a Christ follower and you find yourself in exile, a stranger in a strange land, I want to encourage you to begin to look to the book of Daniel as the book from which you can gain understanding of what it is to live life in exile as an ambassador in a foreign country. In these incredibly bizarre times, it is going to be so easy, easy to be pulled into emotions like fear or anger or hatred. But dear Christian, please stand firm, unmoved by all the chaos around you because you know that Christ is not moved. Recognize that while you take part in the culture of the earth, heaven is your home. And so while you are here, stand strong in the knowledge that the Lord is sovereign and you have been sent here You've been sent into exile to be his ambassadors of the gospel, ambassadors of heaven. And as we move through Daniel, you will see more and more what it is to live a life in exile, always firm in your allegiance to Christ. And so that's our goal as we go through Daniel. That's our goal as we've been introduced to a life in exile, is to recognize this is speaking to us and giving us direction how to be those ambassadors. Amen? Amen. Amen.